This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Joelin, and I'm your host for this episode. I'm here with Dr. Charles Briggs to discuss his new book, Unlearning, Rethinking Poetics, Pandemics, and the Politics of Knowledge, published in May 2021 by University Press of Colorado. Dr. Briggs is co-director of the Medical Anthropology Program, co-director of the Berkeley Center for Social Medicine, and Alan Dundee's Distinguished Professor of Folklore in the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley. He was also recently the president for the Society of Medical Anthropology. As such, Dr. Briggs is at once a linguistic anthropologist and medical anthropologist, as well as a researcher in folkloristics, ethnic studies, Latin American studies, and performance studies. He is the author of numerous important books, including Learning How to Ask, Stories in the Time of Cholera, Making Health Public, and Tell Me Why My Children Died. Thank you so much, Charles, for joining me in conversation today. It's a great pleasure. So I would ordinarily start this dialogue by asking you to narrate your academic training in order to give our listeners a sense of the intellectual and physical spaces you've created and cohabited with others. The introduction of your book, and in a way the entire book, serves as a space in which, as you say, you tell, the, you tell your origin story. You explain that an introduction seduces a reader into interpreting a book in particular ways. You write, quote, telling an origin story whose characters are all prominent academics would imbue this book with a fatal contradiction from the start, unquote. So my first question to you is, what is this contradiction? And what does it mean to be methodologically committed to unlearning? So thanks for that question. It's a great pleasure to be with you today. Um, I guess this actually requires me to sort of start closer to the present and then go back to some, my beginnings as an academic, or even maybe it's prehistory. The unlearning really comes from my graduate students um, in recent years. I mean, I think that you're supposed to, the, the sort of traditional model of academics is you're supposed to accumulate knowledge and then somehow sort of parcel that out to others, particularly students or through books. Um, and rather than having a learning curve recently in discussions with graduate seminars, most of which 
really are, have been for a number of years sort of focused more on decolonizing uh, knowledge. Um, I find that I've, I've really got a steeper and steeper unlearning curve. I learn more and more what sorts of things, what truths that I hold to be self-evident and find that really they're problematic and that I need to really rethink them significantly. So it's been partly through that interaction with wonderful students who have challenged my thinking, partly based upon their own often very different experiences, their interests, and their ways of really approaching the world. So I began this particular process and began thinking about that in terms of some of the work that I've done in about the last 10 years or something like that. Um, and that, so I had put together this book, I had um, all of the chapters in place, and all I needed was an introduction. And for three years, I just couldn't write the introduction. And the reason was I realized that um, introductions, I had taken this as being part of an academic genre, and introductions are basically academic genealogies where you look, you position your ideas um, in relationship to past scholarly knowledge. But the book really is interested in thinking about the way in which my mentors have often been from outside the academy. Not all, of course, but they've been folks who were farmers, they were woodcarvers, they were ranchers healers. And some of the most fundamental sort of philosophical challenges that I faced have been in sustained dialogues with them, some of them over decades. So I thought, wow, that's the contradiction, right? I'm saying that we really need to rec uh, recognize the profound role of mentors who often lie outside of the academy, many people who've been denied through racialization, um, access to education. Um, and then at the same time, I'm presenting basically a foundation that relies entirely on um, academics. So I said, oh, I know, I'll write a memoir, which I've never thought of doing before, but a memoir specifically focused on looking at the role of mentors and how they shaped my entrance into academics and um, all the way through in terms of, you know, the, my own approach to academics. So this really started, I realized, kind of going back and reflecting on this, which was a wonderful process uh, when I was a kid. So, you know, an agriculturalist who was working in my neighborhood with a horse and a plow, right? And, you know, an old hay rake. And so I began to hang out with him and learn from him. So I talk about that conversation. I wandered over and encountered uh, another person who was also in my neighborhood and in um, an area which is now just part of um, Albuquerque, New Mexico, but was um, largely agricultural when I lived there as a kid, um, and a, uh, another a beekeeper who, uh, when I was sort of walked up to him and as he was doing his work, um, ran inside the house and came out with another, came out with, a, with the full outfit for being able to interact with bees. So it's fascinating because through that moment there, um, I first of all began, I spent a lot of time with him, learned a lot from him and from his wife. Um, and it was the beginning for me of what we would now call multi-species ethnography. The bees weren't simply, you know, producing the honey that he used to be able to keep himself going in this neighborhood, but he actually had a deep sort of ongoing relationship with these bees, and he brought me into this conversation. Now, that's probably 40 years uh, before the beginnings of multi-species or more than human ethnography within the field of anthropology and other areas. So I began to thinking about how I got some of these theoretical challenges, 
right? Um, so long before, and of course, it's not as if they had all the answers. There was a whole range of theoretical writings that that came into dialogue with what these mentors were saying. And that helped me understand, you know, shape how it was that I was um, beginning my work. Um, another part was when I, um, I from New Mexico, I went up to northern New Mexico, where my family had known a group of people um, in the community of Cordoba, which is on a road between Santa Fe and Taos, and went back and just started hanging out with them. Um, and they were fascinating because they sort of really taught me about materiality. Right. I mean, what now the new materialisms theory about how really knowledge is not entirely simply something transmitted from one human to another, but involves knowledge that unfolds from material, the agency of, of materials and learning how to interact with them. So the, the um, book really sort of started from this um, understanding. The introduction tries to overcome this contradiction by saying, fine, let me really tell you about my mentors. And I must say, it was a lot of fun to be able to write that. Well, and it's a lot of fun to read. It's, uh, it's also funny. <laughs> um, and so I want to leave uh, to our listeners the, the joy of reading your book's introduction, um, which you also characterize as a sort of idiosyncratic memoir. You said it's a memoir, but I, I like the that particular description. Um, but to illustrate the power of unlearning for you, uh, I'd like for you to talk about the moment, if you would, as a college student, where your, as you say, your scholarly career had ended almost before it had begun. Would you be willing to narrate this interaction and explain what it meant for you as a young scholar? Well, I would say this is certainly the most foundational moment in my scholarship. Um, and you mentioned the book, Learning How to Ask. It was it was the moment that produced that particular uh, book. So 19 years of age, hanging out with these uh, folks in northern New Mexico, and um, who are especially George Lopez and his partner, Silvanita uh, Lopez. And, you know, their work was widely renowned. It was in, you'll find it in major museums throughout the United States and in other countries as well. And I, so hanging out with them and they said, well, you know, um, no one's really asked us about our work. People write about the work, right? But they never actually look and think about our vision. And we and have a wood different vision. Sorry? These are wood carvers. Wood, exactly. The wood carvers said, no one really asks us about our carving and why we do it. Um, and so, and we have a very different view of things. They sold primarily to tourists who came through their community um, and also to high-end collectors and museum curators. And they said, you know, they see us essentially um, as being um, somehow isolated from and not part of the modern world as being, you know, sort of superstitiously religious, as being close to nature, and that these wood carvings as being material embodiments of this essentially non-modern approach to life. And they said, look, um, our lands were stolen by the U.S. government by rich white landowners in the 19th century. As a result, we were forced, I was forced to work in Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory as a janitor, taking me out of my community um, and essentially having to commodify my labor um, in a racialized labor economy. And George Lopez said, I found that this carving, which his father 
uh, had started, provided me with a way of staying in my own community, working for myself, being involved, helping my neighbors, being involved in the full round of ritual and other events that occur within my community. And he said, also, what are these carvings? Yes, some of them represent saints, and they may represent birds and trees. But essentially, rather than being a mirror of our culture, they're a mirror, uh, a material manifestation of the racist stereotypes of the people who buy them. So they said, we want you to write a book um, that really talks about this approach. Now, uh, a term that I learned many years later was, this is called uh, community-driven research, to where the community says, we want you to do this, and this is how we want you to do it. And I said to myself, what? I'm a college sophomore. I don't know anything about this. How would I even begin this? I went to the Museum of New Mexico. There was a wonderful curator who knew more about um, this Santero art over many centuries. And she said, oh, you've got to do this book. You know them, and no one's written anything about this. And I thought, I was helping. I was hoping you'd let me off the hook. So I began, all right. So I thought about that um, and came back and began to think about how to write a book. Now, I studied up as much as I could on anthropological methodology. So I realized that you did interviews. And to do interviews, you came up with a list of questions, just as you did for this interview, um, which is an interview of a different sort, of course. And so I borrowed from my parents a cassette recorder. This is an obsolescent technology that some of your um, listeners may not be familiar with. And I bought um, a small microphone that had a cord attached to it from, I think, a business that's now out of business, Radio Shack, and got my list of questions and sat there one evening with a nice wood fire there in their um, living room and started with the first question, which simply asked, uh, Mr. Lopez, how did you begin carving? Now, I thought this would be that sort of really easy question, which elicits a narrative. And he threw his head back and said, like, who knows? And I thought, wait a minute, what's going on here? Oh, my word. All right. So let's go to question number two, which was, can you tell me how your father, Jose Dolores Lopez, began to carve? And you can now guess, and I bet your listeners could guess, or even voice, I invite them to do so, the same response. quién sabe? Who knows? And my entire anthropological career collapsed in that moment, really before it had ever begun. Um, I threw away my questions, just kind of sat there in, in you know silence, um, took my leave, walked back through the countryside to this small trailer where I was, which I had rented, so I could stay there for, I think, four months in the community. And I was really depressed. Let me tell you, I was bummed out. Um, and I was just, you know, my feet had been knocked from under me. So the next morning I went back and they were there in their kitchen as always carving. And I just sat there. And I just sat there for a while because I had no idea how to begin again. Until finally, you know, Mr. Lopez grabbed a block of this aspen wood, the dried aspen wood that they were carving, and a penknife and put them in my hands. No words. But just thinking that maybe since they were sitting there with blocks of aspen and pen knives and carving, that I might kind of get the idea as to what I was supposed to do. I was obviously not a, a dumb gringo, but maybe I might even potentially, you know, be able to figure that out. So, um, you know, I started carving. And then we 
primarily carved in silence, and they might talk about the weather or agriculture and different things. Um, and so I started carving, started to get somewhat proficient, carved a number of things. Um, and then uh, one day I was carving an image of a saint, and Mr. Lopez asked me, he said, what are you carving? I said, well, I thought I'd make an image of San Isidro, the sort of farmer saint. He nodded. And then about half an hour later, um, he sang the hymn for San Isidro Labrador, which was amazing. And then, all right, some more silence. And then he told the legend of San Isidro as to how he had become revered by farmers in the area. More silence. And then all of a sudden, spontaneously, he talked about the first image of San Isidro that he had begun to carve. So on the basis of this, actually, you know, the study emerged, and it was a wonderful interaction with them and with many other carvers, including also some folks from, you know, the city of Española who didn't come at it the same way. They went to school. They learned some um, art techniques. They were sent to the Vietnam War and had just come back and were using carving as a means of connecting with, as it was called then, their Chicano heritage, and really also dealing with PTSD, right? So a variety of different carvers. And here, as I noted, I basically had learned something both about new materialisms, about the way in which I had to explore until I learned how to carve, how would I be a, a suitable student to be able to interact with them about the carving art? But I also learned something about power imbalances in research. Here I was, 19 years old, didn't know anything. And essentially with the questions, I was telling them, I'm going to tell you how you're going to educate me about your work. I'm going to shape, I'm going to put a box in here, right? And I'm going to define the parameters of the box. And with my questions, I will invite you to put information in that box, which then I will have some control over. And that, Ken Sabe was saying, no, I refuse that. We now actually call that ethnographic refusal. Again, another term that did not exist before, especially now Audra Simpson has elaborated that in others, um, Savannah Changer, so well, right? Which really talks about the racialized politics of knowledge production in anthropology. And they gave me an amazing lesson about that and the way in which the idea that we think that an interview where people can come in and impose questions without really understanding how people learn and how they think about the politics of knowledge transmission was uh, problematic. So for that, I think I've always had this interest. I've now been assigned in my department to teach um, a course to undergraduates on research methods. Um, and we're having a wonderful conversation about the politics of anthropology and research methods. Um, and I confess to the students, I'm really liking your critiques here because after all, um, I was, I, I didn't choose to teach this class. I was assigned it and I've always been the bad boy of anthropological methods. So I share many of your critiques at the same time that I've done now. Well, you know what, um, mm, gee, 50 years of anthropological research, but always with a sort of decolonial sense, um, really reflecting the work, for example, of Linda Tuhiwai Smith, that all methodologies um, are colonial. They have colonial implications, they have power relations, and they often invoke relations of race and racial inequality. So I learned that um, from them in a very sort of powerful way. Um, and that really, uh, again, was, I had to unlearn 
right? The anthropological techniques that I was attempting to be able to assimilate in order to be able to really learn about the world of woodcarvers. Thank you for that. Yeah, and it strikes me that um, from the, I think we think of community projects as starting from the idea that we should be interrogating exactly on whose terms are we producing knowledge. Uh, of course, the we being very important here, but on whose terms is the researcher producing knowledge, etc. But the story shows that that doesn't just stop at the research proposal. It actually uh, goes all the way throughout the research project um, it, it to the point where he he was uh, enacting what we, what, would, what we would call today enacting politics of refusal, kind of like you said, um, ethnographic refusal. And yet that was, what, 40 plus years ago. <laughs> um, okay, uh, so thank you for that. Moving on, your book, it's divided into three parts. And for this conversation, I would like to give our listeners a taste of your reflections that emerge from each section. Part one of the book, which you call Unlearning Racialized Disciplinary Genealogies, reevaluates and challenges what you call the foundational Eurocentrism of folkloristics, anthropology, and other related fields. You say in this part of the book that forging more prominent space for theoretical work in folkloristics has been one of your central goals for several decades. Creating this space, you explain, involves revisiting the supposed ur-object of the discipline, folklore, and how practitioners narrate their relationship to it. And so the question I'm about to ask you may be a bit big, but let's see how it goes. I'd like to know, can you talk about folkloristics relationship or relationships to theory and its supposed object? Uh, if you could, particularly by telling us who Americo Paredes is. So, um, as you say, um, I feel like a little bit like a PhD student in an oral examination. I mean, that's a pretty, that's a challenging question. Thanks. Thanks for that. Um, so in part one, I was sort of thinking about the process of disciplining um, anthropology and folklore. And disciplining, first of all, involves um, creating boundaries. So anthropology ends here. Folkloristics begins there, and where folkloristics is is, is a, a fancy term for the study of folklore. Um, sociology begins there, and you know, as um, Wittgenstein told us in Philosophical Investigations, you know, this is like erecting fences. Disciplines have their own fences, and he says, but you know, um, so you can use fences to keep people in. So, oh well you know, you're becoming an anthropologist, you've got to stop there because otherwise you're leaving the um, the boundaries of anthropology or keeping other people out, right? So, oh, sociologists, you can't poach on anthropological knowledge because really somehow we will erect these boundaries. But, you and know, Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein, that would be your first love in college, as uh, you say. Exactly, Wittgenstein <laughs> okay. and Freud, I would say as well. Okay. Uh, but, um, but Wittgenstein said, or we can also erect fences to jump over them, right? And I've always been a kind of undisciplined person because I really like um, being engaged with academic knowledge. I love theory. Um, it gives me a great deal of pleasure to sort of read and engage with work theoretically. But of course, I've also been working with mentors who placed theory 
um, outside of the academy and ask different sorts of questions that challenge the authority of academic experts. So I was really interested in sort of thinking about, on the other hand, um, so genealogies. Genealogies are ways that we often build disciplines. So who are the who are the foundational figures? And of course, we've wrestled a lot recently with the fact that in many disciplines, including anthropology, they tend to be white males. Right? So how is it that one thinks about what gets reproduced in terms of race and gender and sexuality through these sorts of genealogies? Um, and how it is that often powerful work um, that is not part of standardized genealogies gets itself dismissed. Now, you could go with Deleuze and Watari, who say, you know, we're in a post-genealogical era. We shouldn't do genealogies. But I think about the work of Américo Paredes. Américo Paredes, who is an amazing figure, taught for many years at the University of Texas, Austin. He was a, a performer from South Texas, a performer, um, and also a poet, a novelist, and an exquisite scholar who in 1958 published a book called With His Pistol in His Hand, then looked at a particular corrido, a ballad, right, from the border region. And it was a ballad of, of the resistance of Mexican-Americans, as he called them, against the Anglo elite and specifically the Texas Rangers, who were um, charged with maintaining the racial order which subordinated Mexican-Americans, indigenous peoples, and blacks in Texas. And so, but also in this book, he had a profound theoretical challenge for folkloristics. So his challenge said the standard understanding of folkloristics really came from nationalism. The idea of the people in a particular village, region, nation have a common culture. It's what they share in common. And a major part of that, this is the Herderian package of nationalism, a major part of that is folklore. So these folk ideas give them a shared worldview. So the folklorists would find those shared ideas and be able to somehow um, unearth, do an archaeology of their basis within particular forms of performed culture. And um, Paredes said, that's not what folklore is about. Folklore is about difference and defining difference. He was interested in the legends that Anglo-Americans told about Gregorio Cortes and how that for them constructed the figure of the Mexican-American at the same time of how the ballad was sung and the stories were told, the legends were told within Mexican-American communities that defined oppositionally the figure of the Anglo-American. So he said, what is folklore about? Difference. It's about conflict. Right? Not about sitting happily by the fire, right? but about conflict and about borders. And about borders of, of course, U.S. and Mexico, but of race. And he suggested that it's also about crossing those borders. Because here you've got, you have this figure that really goes across this border between whites and Mexican-Americans. So now, so genealogies. All right. In, I was teaching a big class that I usually teach, um, and I was using this book, and I realized, wow, next year is going to be the 50th anniversary of this book, which was uh, kind of an underground classic. When he was publishing it, he sent the manuscript off to the University of Texas Press, and they said, 
well, we want to publish it, but you have to get rid of all that stuff about the Texas Rangers. So he said, all right, fine, just send me back my manuscript. Remember, there was no digital transmission of manuscripts then. And they said, all right, we'll publish it, but they didn't advertise it. They didn't have a book launch. They essentially disappeared this. And remember, this is the middle of the Cold War, and the theoretical implications of his work for folkloristics were disappeared. So for a very long period of time, partly when his colleague Richard Bauman at the University of Texas really worked with this idea of folklore as difference, right? So for decades, this vision was virtually disappeared. And now I think this book is is tremendously a classic. So, all right, does this mean we're now in a post-genealogical era? So therefore, sorry, Américo Paredes, game over. You cannot be part of the genealogy. Genealogy. Two books were published in the centenary of the American Folklore Society that recounted its history. In one book, Paredes was not mentioned, and in the other book, he was just a footnote. So I said, well, wait a minute. Why do we want to necessarily give up the understanding of genealogies? Because after all, they will be constructed. So maybe they should be questioned and perhaps multiplied. So the idea I wrote wrote in one part of chapter one is an essay that I wrote in collaboration with the wonderful Indian folklorist Sadna Naitani, who's done amazing work um, on German folkloristics. Get that, an Indian folklorist who goes to Germany to study folklore, kind of reversing colonial relations, but has also looked into the British colonial collecting of folklore in India and its centrality to the colonial mission of the British. So we sort of we sort of began to think about what would it be to have a multi-genealogical folkloristics to where actually people um, would think about the genealogies. So particularly as moving away from the idea that scholarship is primarily a conversation between whites. So if one has Black, Latinx, Native American, Asian American, Pacific Islander folklorists, what kind of genealogies would they want to be able to construct and therefore have um, this approach? So that became the sort of basis. So I'm interested in part one with disciplining, how it is that that folkloristics and other areas get disciplined, how it is that particular ideas come to be seen as mobile within that uh, field so that, you know, folklore is seen as being imbued with mobility. It one hand sits in place, but then folklorists, as soon as they extract a text, it should be able to travel the world um, in as a decontextualized sort of artifact of knowledge. Um, but I was and really rethinking how it is that Americo Paredes can be central to the field of folkloristics. So multi-generation, multi-genealogical practice of folkloristics is really a challenge that Sadna and I um, sort of wanted to offer to the field, and particularly to students to say, construct your own genealogies. Absolutely. And and this is something you uh, have been interested in for decades. Uh, I'm thinking back to Voices of Modernity, which complements well um, your co-author's work uh, in sort of unearthing or really looking deep into how certain categories or ideas such as uh, folklore or language were rendered or constructed as separate from the everyday uh, reality of interaction and and language use and uh, all of that. 
Thanks for that. That's, of course, in collaboration with Richard Bauman, who, you know, when I was a young scholar and he was, you know, an exceedingly important figure in anthropology and folkloristics, we began a conversation um, and really sort of thought about how did we get into this miss, mix of basically where um, whiteness and white supremacy were really written into the, some of the foundational ideas of both disciplines. So, you know, we were in conversation for 13 years, and then finally that book emerged. Yeah, and I, ha I have to say to our listeners, anyone who is interested in uh, language, uh, anyone who is interested in the creation of uh, modern subjects, it's, uh, it's a really important read, um, absolutely. Um, okay, so getting back to unlearning. Um, as much as I'd love to talk about voices and modernity all day, <laughs> getting back to unlearning, the part two of the book is entitled Rethinking Psychoanalysis, Poetics, and Performance. In describing an essay in, part, uh, in this part of the book called Dear Dr. Freud, you explain that a failed attempt to place Sigmund Freud's classic essay, Mourning and Melancholia, in dialogue with the laments and narrative of Delta Amakuro women who lost children in a rabies epidemic prompted you to experiment and that you developed what you call a new rule of thumb as a result. Can you elaborate on what it is you mean by this new rule of thumb and what possibilities it has opened up for you in your writing? Thanks for that question. So, um, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I have to bridge the story here. Worked in New Mexico for 14 years. At that point, I thought, you know, I had um, engaged in a number of community-based projects. And I thought that really what I would, had to contribute, um, I perhaps had done so. And I was really interested in, in working um, in Latin America, having always been tremendously interested in, in Latin American, the literature in Latin America, and Latin American uh, writers of many sorts, um, and also in indigenous communities. And being from New Mexico, I was part of, you know, I went to a, a um, high school um, in a relatively poor neighborhood. 60, I think it was something like, this is my own recollection as a student, and maybe about 60% Latinx and maybe almost 30% Native American. They had closed down the uh, in a boarding school, one of these things that they call boarding schools that other people might refer to as concentration camps because they were delivering substandard education. So a lot of the students went to my high school. So a bunch of my friends were Native American, and I knew that the last thing in the world they wanted was a white anthropologist to come and study their language. So began traveling around Latin America with a simple question. Um, you know, I know something about language, um, and uh, I would, is there, could I be useful? Do you think that I'm, it might be of value to have someone like me here to work with you? And ended up uh, partly coming from New Mexico as a place where almost there's almost no water. I went to a place where there's no land. It's the uh, mouth of the third largest river in South America, South America, the Orinoco, where basically it's, um, you know, um, rivers, swamps, 
and people get around by boats. And I went there and asked the people who are called Warao, W-A-R-A-O, um, that same question. And they said, well, we're starting a bilingual education program, and we really want more um, uh, healthcare that bridges between the tremendous um, system of healing that we've had here for a long time and um, work with doctors and nurses. So we think you could be. So I said, that's, that's interesting. So I went back there um, and learned the language and started working with communities. And again, that's where some of my most important mentors um, themselves uh, emerged, both in terms of, of life, uh, of healing, um, with regard to, I mean, first time I actually heard a myth performed and heard the power of the myth teller to be able to bring worlds mm-hmm. into being and to sort of somehow change our own understanding of where we are in the what seems to be the wake-a-day world. But um, what did people talk about? Well, let's see. At the time, um, child mortality, the number of, of children who die between the age of zero and five, was over 30%, maybe as high as 40%. So people talked about illness and death a lot. So really um, began to think a lot about um, about that interface and about the problematics of racial uh, racialized healthcare and inaccessibility of healthcare. In the middle of that, so I was down there just uh, on a fluke, a student of mine at the leading scientific university in Venezuela presented her dissertation, and so they flew me down for the defense. So I said, all right. So I took the overnight bus and went out to the other side of the country um, and thinking I would just hang out, you know, there a little bit and found that there were thousands of people living on the streets of the town because there was a cholera epidemic, right? The same disease um, that now is actually uh, following in the earth in the aftermath of the earthquake in Syria, a, a bacterial disease easily prevented by clean water and food, um, fairly easily treated through uh, rehydration and antibiotics, and yet that can kill uh, an adult with no symptoms in as little as eight to 10 hours. So it was horrible. I mean, in the communities in which one community in which I had worked, as much as a third of the adults had died in a few days. Right? And again, it was massive racialized inattention because the government did not bother to have to increase the healthcare facilities and stockpile resources or even teach people that this disease that they had never heard about before that can kill them so quickly was almost certain to come. So it was a really difficult experience. Then later, um, I uh, wrote a book about that with my uh, with a Venezuelan wonderful Venezuelan public health physician, um, uh, Clara Montini Briggs, and we were taking that book back to the Delta Macuro um, to just uh, we took back the proceeds. We had a Spanish translation, and we had made some money off of royalties and prizes, and that was always blood money. We weren't going to take that ourselves. So we were sitting down with people to try to build a different type of healthcare system. And folks said, well, that's a nice project, but you know what we need right now is many of the kids in a certain set of communities have been dying over the course of a year, and the doctors haven't been able to diagnose what that disease is. And so we've now created, that is indigenous people, we've created our own team, and we're going to go community to community and figure out what's going on here. And we want you, Clara Montini-Briggs, to work as a doctor, and you, Carlos, to work as, or Docomuro, as they call me there, to, to work as an anthropologist. So we had this experience 
of going and listening to all of these parents talk about the death of the one, two, or sometimes three children from this strange disease until Claudia was able to figure out by listening carefully to their accounts in these community meetings, again, community-driven research, that it was very, it was clinically, it was rabies, right? Um, and we also, she worked with a patient who was experiencing rabies symptoms, which is terrible because it's an almost invariably fatal disease. We also then, her uh, family said, we want you to stay for the, uh, for the wake and also for the funeral. And in the wake, people perform laments. These are amazing forms found in many places around the world where women collectively sing, um, basically create a, um, a eulogy, talk about the life of the person who died, how much that person meant to them, talk about the circumstances of the death, and then project how difficult it is to have to live in a world without that without that person. So these are powerful sorts of experiences. And that was another, just like the cholera epidemic, having people die around you um, is, is traumatic. Um, so coming back, um, you know, began to think about, I really want to talk about, you know, what was going on, what these women were doing in these laments and what I had learned from them. And also, uh, following through on their challenge, which is we want people to know about what happened. We want, as we have provided testimonials, a form of witnessing about their lives and their death, we want people to acknowledge that their lives were valuable and that their death is significant. So wanted to work with that and think about issues of mourning. So I turned back to one of the most interesting essays by Freud, Mourning and Melancholia where he really talks in powerful and interesting terms about the powerful emotions that simultaneously grab someone after a close after someone has died on the one hand of wanting to bring them back to life in imaginative terms hypercathexis he called it so the sense of like oh i'm going to hear a knock on the door that will be the person right who just died right and which is, of course, partly trying to be able to deal with the powerful effects of mourning. And then that other voice which comes and says, which he called reality testing, that that's not going to happen. That person is gone. You need to learn how to live right, without that person. Certainly um, a process which so many ex people experienced during the COVID-19 pandemic, surrounded by death and often losing loved ones. So I wanted to bring these two things together. And it was just like writing the introduction to this book. It was an utter failure. I mean, it was accepted at cultural anthropology. Um, they seemed to be ready to go with it. But I wasn't because somehow I had these deeply personal relationships with these women. And then there was this sort of, you know, dead theoretician. And for, again, for years, I had this block, right, where I said, this just isn't working. So the rule of thumb that I developed was saying, all right, well, maybe what's not working here is that you're trying to write in the same sort of way you're using standard academic genres. So is there a way in which I could write that might actually bring right, these two bodies of work into dialogue? And I said, all of a sudden, wow, I get it. I'll write the doodle letter. So this article was uh, constructed as a letter to Dr. Freud. It has no footnotes. I, you know, there were ways in which I in uh, was able to sort of suggest later on some of the theoretical and other um, connections, 
that I had, but it became developed a sort of personal relationship to him and in introducing him to these women in the Delta. And all of a sudden, when I started writing the article from that point of view, just like the introduction to the book, it was so pleasurable, right? It really felt so good. So the rule of thumb is, and often people come up with what are called writer's blocks, right? Where somehow it just doesn't come to say, well, maybe if you can't, if you're up against a major obstacle like this, maybe it has to do with the tools. Maybe it has to do with the genres that you think you need to new, to use to be able to make the project work. So give yourself the liberty of being able to rethink that and say, how else could I write? And we call this often experimental ethnographic writing. How else could I write that might enable this project to really work? Well, and it certainly comes across that you had fun writing it. And I can uh, imagine uh, having written the first version. Uh, and this is what you say in the book. You, you say that it was just you felt you didn't feel right. You, it wasn't fun. It wasn't enjoyable. And then you talk about, as you say, uh, that transformation of the, the, af the, the feeling aspect of the process. Um, thank you for that. Um, if we could dip our toes into the third part of your book, just to get a sense of what is there. Um, this last part of the book is called A New Poetics of Health, Multi-Species Relations, and Environments. And so, in fact, we've already gotten a taste of what might be in the third part of the book with the other parts. But I would like to focus on two ideas in particular, uh, two concepts that you elaborate on, traditionalization and mediatization. And so I'm hoping that our listeners can hang with me here for a little bit. You define traditionalization as, quote, a process through which a broad range of cultural forms, not simply those explicitly commodified, popularized, or invented, are constructed, constructed so as to link them to the emergence of similar forms in the past. And this process, you say, has the effect of saturating these cultural forms with affects and patterns of expectation that structure without determining how audiences engage with them. Mediatization, in comparison, quote, traces processes that unfold across a wide range of sites, actors, technologies, ideologies, and practices, many of which seem to have to do little with the media, unquote. So importantly, you explain that these two concepts, traditionalization and mediatization, are co-constitutive, even as they are frequently cast as opposites, and that they produce much of the social worlds we inhabit. <laughs> so could you help our listeners uh, and me understand these ideas, uh, specifically with the example of the performance of the so-called 2009 swine flu pandemic as a health crisis. So um, you might have guessed, I like puzzles and contradictions. So I really try to be able to create one here that, again, tries to, I mean, the unlearning that try to challenge some of the basis of our thinking in particular areas. So I create one intentionally here. Traditionalization is a concept that I largely borrow from existing work that is on the borders between anthropology, linguistic anthropology, and folkloristics, first of all by Del Himes, and then by my colleague and friend Richard Bauman. 
And so the idea of traditionalization, I mean, beyond the fact that, you know, you take a word and then you add on all sorts of suffixes and things like that, because then it gets more complicated. Uh, but it takes tradition from being a sort of thing that is out there that folklorists go and find and document and then remove, just like objects for a museum. Um, and who have the idea of being able to say, this is real tradition, and this is something which is not really traditional. This is a recent creation that is a sort of faux tradition. Um, and, you know, also through the work of Regina Bendix, who looked at how it was that somehow folklorists saw this authenticity as being imbued in objects, rendering them traditional. And the idea here is to say that traditionalization is actually a process in which people are continually engaged of taking cultural forms and casting them as in some way developing particular types of relationships of continuity with the past. So an active process with Bendix and with many others now, we would actually see scholars as themselves engaged in that process of attempting to traditionalize cultural forms. And of course, that enters into politics of race, because of course, what you ordinarily do is with white elites, you modernize cultural forms, showing how modern they are, right? And then often with especially rural, working class, racialized populations, traditionalize them uh, like the wood carvings as somehow reflecting, right? You know, this connection to a traditional past as opposed to a modern connection to, you know, Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory, to ex land expropriation and to the commodification of labor. So, um, so that's traditionalization. So again, I developed that a little bit, but mainly borrowing from there. Mediatization comes from a very different source. It comes from European uh, media studies. And the idea being here to think about stuff as not being in the media, right? So here is a domain called the media. And let's say we think about journalism. Well, it actually is journalists who are themselves generating this within newsrooms or such locations. But thinking about mediatization as being a process in which different cultural domains themselves come together, think about the way in which the mediatization of evangelical Christi Christ Christianity around the world, of now you have, you know, so much of it is um, you know, mediatized. Um, my, I made my living when I was a in high school and college as a radio disc jockey. So, you know, in the early morning, the sort of early morning um, Sunday show of playing many of these pre-recorded um, broadcasts, but now this is a tremendous dimension. So religion, right, and media come together in a very dynamic sort of way. And of course, my interest was in health. So the idea being that, you know, health is the number three market in um, U.S. media after politics and economics. Huge proliferation across platforms of interest in health. So, um, but really this isn't just journalists because now you actually have, you, know, you have in public health offices, you have media office, officers. In large health organizations, you have media officers, right? And at the same time, think about um, you know, the way in which you have in national network news television, you have physicians who become the medical correspondents for those. So here you have the logics and professional capacities of medicine, public health, and of journalism coming together in a dynamic sort of way. Now, of course, think about marketing within the field of pharmaceuticals. The marketers are involved in the research from the beginning to the end.
right? In the selection of the, of, in the research, in the clinical trials, etc. So how do these things come together through these different sites and different logics? So that's the notion of mediatization. So what I did in the book was basically in that section of the book was to play a trick. So I said, let's take one example, right, of mediatization. And you would think that I would take something that was modern um, and that was sort of part of the contemporary unfolding world. And since the book is a lot about pandemics, that I would take pandemics. And I didn't. I said, let's talk about the Brothers Grimm. And what the Brothers Grimm did was they created a mediatization industry of being able to find particular artifacts, right, and to render these things mobile so that they could be inserted into the pages of what became one of the most popular books in the world. And therefore, um, it was fascinating to think about how, the, and of course, that involved horses to get them off in the countryside, editors, typesetters, as well as narrators, right, and marketers for their book. So thinking about, although marketer was a marketing was of course a different thing in you know the early 19th century so i was really interested to use that as an example of mediatization and how that actually created the idea that these folkloristic texts themselves were commodities that could be bought and sold as modern objects so and within media markets and then go ahead Oh, it just makes me think that the Brothers Grimm's project was very much the project of the art purveyors who were uh, creating uh, the wood carvings uh, in New Mexico as uh, traditional objects, or as you might say, tr modern objects, in fact. That's actually a fascinating connection because the wood carving uh, would probably not have become an industry, right? Um as it did within this particular world, if you had not have had the Santa Fe and Taos artist colonies. So you had writers and artists themselves who were there because they wanted to consume and reproduce quote unquote exotic cultures, right? And so they were traveling around there looking for um, colorful subjects and people. And that's how they happened upon Jose Dolores Lopez. And he was basically making really, he was an amazing, furniture maker um, with a, a incredible imagination. So they encouraged him. They said, oh, well, you know, people really like these saints because actually some of them were buying up those saints uh, from um, chapels and selling them as antiques. So they said, why don't you make some of these saints? So there you actually had people who were fundamentally involved in the making of that industry. So I turned things around by turning the Grimm's into an example of mediatization. So then I took what would be seeming to be a, a quintessential modern object. And here I was really, I'd done extensive research with the uh, leading um, media studies scholar, Daniel Hallen, on the H1N1 or swine flu pandemic um, of 2009. So we were really interested in how it was that all of a sudden, almost overnight, in 24 hours, you know, people created the image of there being a scary pandemic and generating a narrative that was relatively stable until the vaccine rollout, um, you know, the following year when all of a sudden the vax wars, right, became much more complicated along these lines. So taking this... And to be clear, you're calling the pandemic a quintessentially modern object. Right. So pandemics are quintessentially modern objects. They first of all involve the degree of scientific logics, ordinarily identify a pathogen. So what causes a pandemic, right? It's the SARS-CoV-2 
virus, right? Not structural inequality, not the privatization of health, right? Not racialized health inequalities, right? Um, and but you know a particular virus, right? Um, and at the same time, there's a whole modern technology, biosecurity, for being able to generate you know the um, bodies of people who are prepared to deal both scientifically, logistically, and also in terms of mediatization, right? To be able to get the information to the public in these pandemics. So we were really interested in how it was that they created a pandemic, as it were, in 24 hours. And it turns out that, that you know, H1N1 was supposed to be the big one. It turned out not to be that way. It wasn't as widespread, and particularly it didn't kill as many people. So looking at particularly um, the broadcast of the initial broadcast on a national news network of the story on this and how it was that they developed this particular narrative um, about a pandemic. And so that was my example of traditionalization. So looking at the narrative forms that there was essentially a very well ingrained pandemic story, which partly had been created by germ thrillers, right? Outbreak popular movies, popular novels, The Hot Zone by Preston, right? With all of the sound effects and images of people in lab coats and even from outbreak of where you see epidemiologists, you know, the electron, the uh, microscopic image of a virus, and then people doing roots of transmission became part of a narrative technique and bing, they plugged that in. And that both was not only for journalists something that had become a traditionalized narrative technique, but for audiences who were able to immediately see this as being the narrative of the of the big one that's emerging, and uh, were tremendously taken by that story. So I was really interested in how it was this. And and by the way, I'm not. This is not a sort of narrow quote social constructivist unquote argument that's saying that um, viruses don't exist. They're all thought up. I mean, you can't be in the middle of a rabies epidemic, another virus, right? And see people die and sort of deny the biological dimensions of disease. But I was really interested in this joint process of traditionalization and mediatization and sort of thinking about this. So how is it that one might be able to think between anthropology and folkloristics, right? About um, not health and the media or folklore and the media, but these processes of mediatization of how these, our own engagement by everyone in these techniques, either as viewers or as producers themselves, um, engagement with these complex processes of mediatization, you know, cell phone, citizen cell phone videos, right? We're actively participating in the production of journalism with our cell phones. So how is it that we're all involved in these particular sorts of processes? We know what is con- how to construct, in some sense, a cell phone, citizen, journalistic cell phone video. So what are these sorts of processes? So I became really interested in that. Yeah, and, and, and you do, I think you do an excellent job also of pushing back against uh, the, what you say, what you call the disciplining of knowledge. The, the forcing or constructing uh, certain objects of knowledge as proper to and, and unique to certain disciplines specifically by bridging these two terms, bringing them together to speak to the swine flu pandemic. I wanted to follow up uh, with just one question here that's sort of been racking around in my mind after reading your book, 
which is, um, of course, there are different forms of non-expert knowledge that are voiced and made to circulate in different ways from what are called non-expert knowledge, from the cholera outbreak in Venezuela to American school board meetings, for example. And so as different as, the, as these forms of non-expert knowledge might be, I'm curious what you would say links them. What might link them? Um, what particular, what, which particular different forms of knowledge? Specifically, I'm thinking of uh, cholera outbreak uh, f- families within this outbreak who are expressing uh, certain types of knowing, who, who, who claim to know certain things about uh, what is going on in this community. And you talk about that in contrast to a biomedical understanding of what might be going on in this community. And it strikes me that uh, in the United States, uh, especially uh, after the or during the COVID-19 pandemic, you also have a sort of pushback to the what we might call a classic biomedical uh sort of framework uh, in the form of anti-vaxxers, in the form of uh, people voicing the idea that uh, the pharmaceutical companies, for example, are uh, simply pushing vaccines on people for this or that reason. And so I was wondering if you could comment on whether or not there is a link here uh, and sort of what politics are at play behind that. That's it's a great question. Nice, nice connection. So one thing that interested me in the color epidemic, um, I mean, this research was uh, to be able to understand, I mean, approximately 500 people died from this relatively easily preventable and treatable disease um, in this population, almost all indigenous people. So medical racism. So how did that happen? And it was in, because people there said, we want to know, you know, why, um, why your health conditions here are so bad and why there is this sort of response on the part of health authorities. So um, Claudia Montini Briggs and I, first of all, we went through every single small community in under a 40,000 40, square kilometer area. We would go into a community. Um, we would, uh, first of all, ask them what current health conditions were like, what health problems they were facing. Uh, many of them had never had access in their communities to health services. So Claude, as a really good doctor, would treat patients who needed help. Um, she often, when there was no one else around and uh, a real nurse around, I had to be uh, her nurse and learned a lot about being able to do that. And then we would sit down with people in these community meetings and say, well, what happened to the cholera epidemic? And this was still shortly afterwards. So those memories were very fresh and sorting through things was important to them. And so they would tell stories about, you know, what had happened there and why. Why did so many people die from cholera? Now, we also counted. We also did popular epidemiology, trying to count the number of, of deaths that had occurred within their community because the government basically told the World Health Organization that 13 people had died in this area from cholera in two years. So we really needed numbers that reflected some sense of the scale of what had occurred. So during this, we often got a number of things that would be classified as conspiracy theories, right? So um, 
Well, the government dumped a poison, right? Dumped these bacteria because, uh, you know, upriver, because there's one river that's feeding this whole area, right? We saw these drums and they dumped them in the water, right? And it came through the water um, and it was meant to be able to kill our communities. Now, um, the idea that when that one would take the content literally um, um, was not the point, but to think about how it was that essentially, rather than thinking about vibrio cholerae, a bacteria as the cause of the epidemic, people were saying, we need to think about race and racism. So there were a whole range of different sorts of narratives that were saying, we want to take a global perspective right? Um, the Persian Gulf War was beginning at the time. Was this related in some way, right? What was going on? And where is racism that fits into this broader perspective? So they had actually gave us through these ways in which people were trying to produce knowledge about this epidemic um, to be able to think about the challenging, the connections, again, the boundaries, right? The fences with Wittgenstein that had constrained ways of thinking about this epidemic, and that would therefore be repeated with any future epidemic. So we're really interested in this dimension. So now to jump ahead a little bit, um, was, as I noted, involved in a cholera epidemic and a rabies epidemic. And these events were tremendously traumatic. I made one promise to myself, which was I would never uh, do research on another epidemic or pandemic. And um, that worked pretty well. Uh, from March 2020 um, for about a year and a half because I was teaching a full load and doing a lot of administrative work and also helping students whose entire research programs had collapsed when all of a sudden they couldn't travel and it was not safe to work in person with their interlocutors. But then all of a sudden I had a sabbatical and uh, began to really think about and having conversations with people about COVID-19. And thinking about how the pandemic, and especially its mitigation measures, had transformed their lives, their work, um, and also their fundamental understandings. I mean, I was sitting out with a friend of mine with whom I often go off in the fall, and we pick berries, and we make marmalade, and we hike. And we were there, um, and while I was doing this, I said, well, I want to, he's also a leading judge in California. So I said, I want to do an interview with you. Tell me about how the pandemic has changed your work. He said, these days I'm sitting alone in the courtroom with my clerk and everybody else is on Zoom. And he said, I had all of these ideas, legal principles and legal rituals, right? Which I thought were absolutely crucial to establishing access to justice, right? And now the jurors are all in their homes on Zoom. And we always wanted to look at the jurors and lord over them because we thought that they really wouldn't be serious about the legal process, Right. And it turns out that they're tremendously interested and dedicated to this process. And having all of these people and all of these sites overturn a lot of his basic understandings of the law and how it needs to function. And his bottom line was, and it's better now, right? I realized that a lot of those underlying principles were wrong and we're rethinking the law. So I thought, wow, this is amazing. So now I've interviewed in-depth interviews um, physicians and nurses working in, in uh, emergency rooms and intensive care units, people in private practice. I've interviewed firefighter paramedics. I've interviewed um, educators, um, clerical folks, religious professionals, and lots and lots of lay people. I did, um, for example, a month of work 
in rural Montana with the classic folks who were described as being anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers who were also were strong supporters of um, former President Donald Trump. Because I really wanted to understand what were their logics. So the long and the short of it is here you have in the beginning of the pandemic, public health authorities through this sort of particular process um, of the production of pandemic knowledge, basically tell lay people, shut up and listen, right? You need to hear what we have to say and to, um, to be able to protect yourselves, to internalize this knowledge about a novel virus, and then to be able to reflect this in behavioral terms in order to be able to survive. So um, this, um, and at the same time, so be quiet and listen to the knowledge makers. Don't try to produce knowledge yourself. Don't try to sort it out, just listen to us. At the same time, what happens? A massive burden of care. You need to transform your homes, your workplaces, childcare, education, food procurement, right? And you're going to have to pretty much figure that out for yourself. And if somebody gets sick, you're going to do the work of taking care of them unless they require hospitalization. So think about that. You have no role in knowledge production, but you have a massive burden of care. And, you know, essentially, especially since scientists had a lot of trouble figuring out this virus, it's really pesky. The scientific knowledge was uncertain and it was shifting. Were scientists bad? No, because this was a process of discovery, which was very challenging. So all of this you put together, and then you have a lot of people out there saying, the heck with it. So you have, for example, people with long COVID, long haulers, where the scientific community knew almost nothing. Here are the symptoms, right? CDC list. Here are the symptoms of COVID-19. And they will resolve in X amount of time. And then months and in some cases, years later, people have symptoms that are not on the list and are not going away, where there are no treatments, and often where physicians at first were saying, oh, you know, this is really psychological. You're making this up. So what happens? People begin to try to make knowledge about their own condition and get involved in social media where they're sharing this information with one another. So a massive process of lay knowledge production which is absolutely crucial for the pandemic. Now, and therefore, a lot of that gets immediately dismissed. The World Health Organization immediately declared a pandemic and an infodemic. So other forms of vernacular knowledge production themselves are seen as being misinformation, conspiracy theories. And all of that vast array of lay knowledge production gets swept into this denigrating bin. So I've one of the things I'm trying to do with the research that I've done on the pandemic is to think about what was going on. What were the massive contributions on the part of lay people that were crucial? How could that have more been valorized and seen as part of a co-production of knowledge in this particular situation? Not actually asking lay people to come up with, you know, to trace the genetics of COVID-19, but to think about partners in knowledge production um, as well, rather than as threats to public health through attempting to be able to produce and circulate knowledge. So that's been the major focus of my research recently. Um, and that is an interesting connection. I think it's something I learned from the cholera epidemic of saying, you know, I, I guess you could say it's sort of in defense of, of conspiracy theories, sort of. <laughs> right. 
Um, and it, it, what something you said, uh, you said no role in knowledge production and a massive burden of care, which is uh, what, uh, for example, Americans might have in or anyone might have in this this pandemic that uh, has been with us. And it makes me think that that is perhaps a, a good uh, definition of the uh, classically imagined role of the anthropologist in the field with uh, his or her interlocutors. Um, anyway, uh, I was wondering, what do you think of the idea, uh, which is something you have voiced in part as of the pandemic mapping the coloniality of racialized inequalities in the biomedical system uh, as a way to sort of bring together everything that you are saying there? So uh, that's a wonderful question. Thank you for that. First of all, I wouldn't give any sort of simple one, you know, um, um, summary of what the pandemic was all about, because this is a global phenomenon, tremendously complex, very different in different sorts of areas. Um, but um, certainly it revealed uh, the deeply racialized and unequal healthcare system in the United States um, and healthcare, but the inequalities of labor, of food, of housing. Um, now, why were um, Latinx, Native American, and Black populations having higher rates of hospitalization and death from COVID-19? Where were people having to work? What were their living conditions? Um, I did uh, a week of work in the San Joaquin or Central Valley of California um, in communities of uh, farm workers, um, people who worked in packing plants, uh, where they were often, when they called in sick with COVID symptoms, were told they had to come to work um, today. Uh, it's actually a shooting in Half Moon Bay in California has now produced a whole bunch of popular press reports on the deplorable conditions, including housing conditions of farm workers. So it's the, in calling attention to the racial differentials in COVID-19, there has been at least some small attention to the structural issues that racialize healthcare and burdens of disease in the United States. So that's one tremendous part of this story. Unfortunately, often the reporting has been more of talking about them, right, rather than not always sort of thinking about what was being done in these communities to be able to tremendous work by activists um, and by others to be able to somehow procure food, to provide access to vaccines, access to knowledge. I worked with a, a wonderful group called Lideres Campesinas, um, who uh, brought doctors out to the fields in the beginning of the pandemic to talk to people about health conditions, about the disease in their own sites, right? So um, fascinating to think about on the one hand, uh, I interviewed an NPR reporter um, and who had an amazing range of of um, things to say about the pandemic. And one thing she said now is, you can't do a health story without talking about health inequities. This has become awareness of what every member of a racialized community knew before. We're talking about white people understanding the depth and the impact of racialized health inequities. So I do hope that, that um, this really will push both the healthcare system, policymakers, and people in general to understand that there's a this is a real problem. This is getting worse. This is 
injustice in a particularly raw sort of form. And I'm hoping that the pandemic will also produce positive effects of people being able to understand that we need systematic changes to be able to um, to increase equity and justice in healthcare and so many other areas in the United States. Thank you for that response. Yeah, absolutely. Um, last question for you. Um, don't want to take up any more of your time, uh, but I am very curious. Uh, I'm wondering how you might characterize now your relationship to the discipline of folkloristics, getting back to Paredes, thinking about everything we've talked about. Um, I'm curious, for example, do you identify professionally as a folklorist still? Um, And if so, what might that mean for you to identify as such or not? Very good question. Um, I should say that um, I'm a foe of nationalisms, right? Um, and I think the disciplinary nationalisms are about the same, right? So, you know, rah, rah, I am a, um, has never been sort of at the top of my lips. Uh, I'm, um, I would say trans, I'm a transdisciplinary scholar. Now, um, interdisciplinary work, um, is, uh, I think there are three ways you can go at that. One is you can try to fly over the, the boundaries of the different disciplines, without paying attention to them. And basically what happens is that um, it doesn't work very well because people within those disciplines say, oh, but you know, they don't, you know, this person doesn't understand the fundamental presuppositions or the methodologies that make this discipline work. So often it becomes um, work that is not necessarily, doesn't register and have much impact in those individual disciplines. The other one is the sort of bits and pieces. So take a little bit of folkloristic, take a little bit of anthropology, a little bit of cultural studies and put them together. And what you ordinarily get are really bad bedfellows because they come from very different sorts of of processes of knowledge production um, and the, and many contradictions emerge. So what I've always tried to do is to under, is to is to be engaged so deeply with the discipline that you try to understand what are its basic presuppositions? How are the ways in which knowledge are produced? And what are some of the limits of those? And then if you do that with another discipline, so it's the, the bar is high because you've really got to dig in and understand each of these disciplines. But if you do that, what happens is that I think you can do more creative and critical scholarship because then those presuppositions um, and those methodologies, I guess, you know, in the words of the Russian formalists, are made strange. You can see them more clearly, and therefore you can critically engage them. And at that point, you can move between them and think about different sorts of modes of of synthetic work. So I deeply engage with, and got a PhD in anthropology. Um, I work very much within linguistic and medical anthropology. I have a book coming out which really tries to to sort of decolonize understandings about language and communication and medicine and health um, along those lines. Um, and also have uh, worked uh, in dialogue with folklorists for a long period of time. But I'm actually trying to really not combine them, but um, to critically transform the, the ways in which work in those different disciplines is done by placing them in dialogue, and often by getting folks in different disciplines to see beyond those sorts of boundaries, oh, I don't do that, right, to be able to think about what those other disciplines can offer them. So I guess I don't, 
really identify, you know, rah-rah with any of the disciplines, as I'd also try to continue to deeply engage with them, both in terms of uh, work with students, um, in writing, um, in um, in especially in through mentorship, and then as well um, in professional organizations. Very interesting. Thank you for that response. Um, and I have to say, I am uh, definitely looking forward to that uh, that next book. I think that we will finish it up here. Uh, I'd like to highly encourage our listeners to get themselves a copy of Unlearning wherever they might be able to. Uh, it is a very captivating read, and I think that there's uh, really so much to chew on in this book, something for everyone. And to you, Charles, uh, it has been a true pleasure and an honor to speak with you today. So I thank you again for joining me. Thanks so much to you. Wonderful questions. Really enjoyed the conversation.